Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights Podcast, where we talk about interesting recent work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. So today's paper is Recurrent Neural Network Grammars, uh, written by Chris Dyer, Adi Kankuru, Miguel Balestres, and Noah Smith. Uh, today, we're very pleased to have Chris Dyer with us in the podcast. Uh, Chris Dyer is a researcher at Google at Google DeepMind and an assistant professor in School of Computer Science at Carnegie Mellon University. His research contributions span many topics, including machine translation, morphology, distributional semantics, parsing, among other topics in natural language processing and machine learning. Chris lives in London, and in his spare time, he plays cello. Uh, on a more personal note, Chris was my PhD co-advisor at CMU, and I learned so much from him. It is a true pleasure finding an excuse to meet with you again, Chris. Well, thanks, Walid. It's a, it's a great pleasure for me, too. <laughs> okay, so uh, the one sentence summary for, uh, about this paper is uh, that it describes a probabilistic model for, for generating sentences with an explicit phrase structure, and this can be used for both parsing and language modeling. So what gets you most, most excited about this work, Chris? Uh, I think what I really like about this is that it's a, a generative model uh, that works really, really well on a problem that uh, we usually think uh, is best solved with discriminative methods. So uh, parsing, for example, we give some input, we want to predict some output. That seems like a discriminative setup. But here what we're doing is we're saying, well, we're building a joint model where we generate sentences by generating a syntactic structure. Uh, and then uh, to do parsing, we uh, compute the posterior distribution over trees given that sentence and say, find the best one. Um, and this turns out to work really well. Um, and that's exciting because for me, uh, as a sort of uh, someone with a background in linguistics, uh, Syntax, that's what syntax is designed to do, is to describe how sentences come to be. We think uh, they aren't just um, tools for analysis. They're actually a record of how, in some sense, uh, sentences are generated. Um, we've simplified it in various ways, and it's uh, not, not perfect, but uh, it's still essentially a generative uh, model. And so to model this using a generative approach and see good performance uh, is, to me, almost a confirmation of the idea of syntax. Great. So uh, one of the inter one of the new themes in this paper compared to previous work in transition-based parsing is that it, it constructs the parse tree in a top-down fashion rather than a bottom-up fashion. Could you explain the difference between the two and why one is better than the others, or what are the differences? Uh, right. So... Um, <clears throat> A top-down uh, process is uh, a more natural order for uh, the generation of a uh, of a parse tree, which is um, so. If you go back to these phrase structure parse trees, they really were characterized in terms of a top-down uh, process, and so we can use the chain rule to factorize a big joint probability distribution in any way we want. Uh, but there really is a uh, inherent uh, reason to think that generating uh, top-down is, is good for this problem. Um, and we saw this back, uh, we've known this 
was probably sensible for a long time. Um, we would do things like parent and grandparent annotations to build better grammars uh, for generative models of parsing back in the days when we were doing count-based or smoothing-based approaches to uh, inferring probabilistic grammars, uh, and those worked really well. In fact, when you conditioned on uh, uh, sort of very long history going all the way up the tree, you got very, very beautiful grammatical sentences. It was just very hard to estimate them because the data became very sparse. So you can think about what we did in this paper saying, well, we want to condition on all of this stuff, including the, you know, the, the ancient ancestors going all the way up the tree, but we're going to use neural networks to uh, control the capacity of the model. So rather than having a massive sparse model, uh, we're going to have everything embedded in uh, a low-dimensional space, and that'll make the estimation problem uh, a little easier. Absolutely. So we can think of this <clears throat> as um, a more elaborate, a more um, expressive way of generating uh, uh, sentences uh, compared to a, a CFG, uh, an HMM based on a, on a CFG uh, parsing. Right, right. So I think to me what this model does is it says, well, we want to model this big joint distribution on trees and strings, uh, and we know that we might have gotten some details of our theory of syntax wrong. Uh, in fact, I would bet on it. Uh, and so really any decision we make somewhere in the distant past might be uh, important for predicting, say, the subsequent decision about building structure, the subsequent word. Um, but a priori, we probably assume that uh, things that are close by syntactically in the tree, say who your uh, sibling is or who your parent is, uh, that's probably pretty important information for uh, making good decisions about what the next structure, bit of structure to build is. Uh, and so RNNs, uh, tend to build in this bias where they can see that gradients flow uh, more easily to things in the recent past rather than in the distant past. And so in some sense what this model is doing is it's making things that are syntactically recent uh, also um, close in the RNNs that are uh, parameterizing this work. And things that are uh, close by uh, sequentially might actually be somewhat far away. And this is exactly what linguistic theory tells us might be happening. So um, the, the, the claim that's been made for a long time in the theory of generative grammar is that the human mind, the language faculty, isn't sensitive to things that happen nearby in time, basically the standard temporal Markov assumption, but rather things that are close by in these syntactic structures. But don't, don't you actually get both of them? Because of, because um, you're you're embedding the buffer and you're embedding the stacks. Like, can you actually yeah. lo look at the weights that are learned to actually tease apart what's actually going on here? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, so I put that in because of course I didn't trust myself to give up on uh, on sequentiality uh, too much because well we know sequential models work uh, really really well. Um, so there's actually a follow-on paper by my uh, student Adi Kinkoro, who's the second author uh -huh. uh, on, on this paper uh, that just uh, came out at EACL a couple weeks ago in Valencia, uh, and he uh, tested this by ablating the model. And we actually found that when we got rid of the encoding of the buffer, uh, we did better uh, than, uh, <laughs> wow. than that's surprising. we added in there. Um, so that was, 
that was actually uh, the best possible result that uh, wow. that I, I could have hoped for, um, and and a real surprise. In fact, I, I thought, well, language is partially sequential. There actually are some interesting uh, interference effects. So uh, another interesting recent paper uh, looking at syntax and RNNs uh, from a different side saying how much do the sequential ones look at is this paper by Tal Lins and uh, Joav Goldberg and Emmanuel Dupuy. Uh, that was in uh, Tackle uh, either earlier this year or late last year. Um, and uh, they talk about this phenomenon where if you have a sentence like the keys to the cabinet are on the table, uh, that R word, that agrees with keys, the subject of the sentence, but there's this intervening singular uh, noun which might confuse a learner. So you have to know the syntactic structure in order to make the right prediction. Mm -hmm. And they looked to what extent RNNs are figuring out uh, this sort of thing and have a, have a really nice set of uh, results, very, very detailed analysis. Um, and so, uh, and well, the, the point of bringing this up actually was to say that they point out that people aren't actually perfect in these con, uh, in, uh, with these things either. About 10% of the time, you'll say the wrong word uh, and agree with the most recent noun rather than the one you should have agreed with. Um, so I always thought, well, really what we need is probably a little bit of both. So I'm going to have both the sequence, the sequential encoding of the buffer uh, and also the, the tree encoding that comes through the stack. Uh, but I was happy to see that if we got rid of them, we'd be better. Interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, one of the things that I found most excited, exciting about this paper also is um, the, the intuition that you can modify or adapt the parser transitions to generator transitions. Um, could you tell us a little more about this and um, how did you come up with this idea? <laughs> Um, well, basically what we're doing is we're defining a distribution over, over these structures and, um, trees are, can be enumerated in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, you can, you can traverse them in unambiguous ways. So there is exactly one unique depth first left to right traversal of a tree with ordered children. Um, and we basically just said, well, we're going to generate trees by following this uh, by following this uh, this ordering. Um, and uh, this has been done previously uh, in discriminative models by uh, um, Oriel Vignoles, uh, now my colleague at uh, uh, at DeepMind, who was formerly with Google Brain. Um, and uh, this. Basically, though, idea of decomposing complex structures into little pieces and predicting those in some order is uh, is a classic way to build um, uh, complex probability distributions. So, uh, in particular, in this with RNNs, where you can uh, expect the RNN, or at least hope the RNN will remember anything important from the past, uh, you can actually justify this using the chain rule, um, and so. Um, it's not always the case that there's a very obvious set of transitions that um, you can define. So in some cases, um, you can't compute uh, in an easy way the set of transitions that would let you build a valid structure uh, at any particular given time. There can be very complex uh, dependencies across time, but when you're building trees, well, they turn out to be fairly, uh, uh, fairly simple. Um, so the idea, this is basically two ideas. One is factorizing this distribution in terms of uh, uh, the chain rule, 
uh, and two is um, breaking down uh, the structure building operations in, turn of, in terms of little simple actions. Uh, and those two things uh, work nicely. Um, I presented it more in terms of transition-based parsing and these abstract state machines uh, because I had been working on uh, – I had been coming from this from a parsing uh, uh, background – and uh, most recently, before that, I had been working on tra pure transition-based parsing. Um, and that was just the uh, kind of metaphor I had in mind. Um, but I think uh, uh, it is maybe not the best way of thinking about this work, actually. Uh, it's just basically decomposing a complex uh, structure in terms, of, uh, in terms of the chain rule and these structure-building operations. That's interesting. When I read this paper, I thought it was a. It, it, I read it as a pretty na pretty natural transition from your dependency parsing stack LSTMs to constituency parsing. Uh, it sounds like you're hedging on on that characterization of it. I, I guess it, it it was also a completely natural transition for me too, which is why why I did this. Uh -huh. um, on the other hand, I maybe a better way of saying it is uh, I think transition based parsing uh, sort of misses the. Uh, um, it's a little narrower than it needs to be. So transition-based parsing usually thinks, well, I'm going to be uh, uh, operating on some data structures until I get to uh, an end condition. Somehow I'm going to be consuming some, some input. Uh, and really, um, yeah, sometimes there are inputs, but sometimes uh, you're just this, it's this little automaton that's, that's executing until it gets to some uh, start state. And sometimes some of these automata uh, will consume inputs and other ones will, uh, will just generate things, or maybe they'll do a mix of the two. Um, and so um, I don't think I really appreciated that until I started using these things to build generative models. I see. Do you think you could similarly just as how for this constituency parsing work, you have a discriminative version and a generative version. Could you go back and make the dependency parser generative? Yeah, sure. Um, and people have done that. There's a paper by uh, uh, Jan Boys, uh, who is a PhD student uh, finishing at the University of Oxford right now, um, um, working uh, with my colleague Phil Bluntsom. Uh, and he has exactly that, a version that builds, uh, our, that builds a dependency structure um, uh, using basically the same shift-reduced, so bottom-up style uh, construction uh, of the tree, um, and uh, we uh, and and that works. Uh, you know, that's another approach. Um, another one of my uh, students at CMU is also working on a top-down uh, generator for trees um, uh, based on dependency. Uh, a dependency formalism rather than a, a phrase structure formalism. So, um, yeah, there, there are many, many uh, different things that you can uh, you can do here. Um, I think this uh, question, though, of, uh, you know, uh, being able to compare bottom-up and top-down generation orders is going to be uh, particularly interesting to look at in the uh, in the dis in, de in the dependency case. Um, so uh, it'll be interesting to see what those results are. Yeah, I would... Do you have enough results yet to, to know if the if your generative model, <clears throat> so your result in this paper was that generative models did better than discriminative models. Do you do we have enough results in the dependency parsing case that it holds there too? Uh, no, we just literally got this implemented uh, okay. 
uh, last week, uh, and we only have uh, very, very preliminary uh, results. Um, in fact, we can just generate uh, things from it right now. We can't actually parse with it yet because we haven't built the uh, built the parser, which uh, is a little bit of a challenge. So, uh, computing that uh, most probable posterior parse uh, is kind of a kind of a tricky uh, problem. We had to use uh, uh, important sampling. Um, some other follow-on work that I think has been very interesting was done by. Uh, a student of Dan Klein's, uh, and that will be coming out uh, at uh, ACL this summer, uh, where they develop a beam search uh, algorithm for decoding directly from uh, directly from this uh, RNNG model, and uh, they um, are able to then show uh, some interesting stuff. One is that um, the algorithm that we use to do uh, posterior inference. Uh, which was uh, based on important sampling. Uh, well, important sampling is a biased estimator, and uh, it basically drags the uh, distribution that you're, uh, in some sense, inferring toward uh, the instrumental or proposal distribution that you're using. And we were using a discriminative version of our parser uh, as the proposal distribution. Um, and it turns out they were able to show that there's an ensembling effect going on. So the generative model is better than the discriminative model. That was confirmed. But um, there's further uh, benefit when you put together uh, the two models. And so they, they've actually got some truly outstanding uh, results. Um, they look at another generative model. And when they put all three of them together, they're almost getting to 95% F uh, on uh, section 23, wow. which for those uh, uh, poor souls uh, worried about parsing accuracy on section 23 is uh, is a really phenomenally good uh, result. We've seen just a, a huge uh, um, uh, set of improvements over the last uh, couple of years um, with uh, neural networks on this task. So I think it's time to work on a different task. <laughs> so do you, do you think that uh, the, the, the generative model works better than the standard model really because it, it is a better fit? for how the data is generated, or uh, is there a different hypothesis that you have about why this is the case? That's a good question. I think there are two things. One, I would like to say it's a, it's a better fit. Um, two, um, we've got some other work coming out this uh, year. Uh, well, hopefully, uh, it's in review at ICML right now, where we compare the performance of discriminative and generative models on uh, the same task. And uh, we look at really simple tasks, just text classification. And uh, uh, so, you know, really something where the um, we don't think the data generating process is uh, is is correct at all. Um, but um, we do find uh, that some of the old results that Andrew and Michael Jordan had identified about 15 years ago that generative models have higher asymptotic errors but approach those error rates uh, more rapidly, that is, they have a better sample complexity, um, those hold also empirically uh, with big, fancy neural network generative models, um, and also compared to big, fancy uh, neural uh, discriminative models. So. Um, the original work was very theoretical, but it relied uh, crucially on linearity and convexity and all of the stuff that we've completely gotten rid of. But we still see the same thing, that uh, basically we have lower sample complexity or better sample complexity in, uh, uh, in generative models. And so I think there's good evidence that we just don't have enough data to train a very good parser discriminatively on 
um, on the Pen Tree Bank and uh, just the 40,000 sentences that are available from the Pen Tree Bank. Uh, so one other hypothesis might be that we are doing better because we are uh, working with a more sample efficient learner, uh, namely this generative estimator rather than the discriminative one. That's really interesting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to reading <clears throat> the paper when it comes out. <laughs> I have one you more. Can, well, you can find the ICML one on. Uh, that's on archive somewhere. Donny Yogatam is the first author, so you can you can check that out. <laughs> cool. I have one more kind of higher level point. Um, in your intro to this paper, you uh -huh. you talk about um, Chomsky's work on hierarchical nature of language, and you say that sequential models are are, are a priori inappropriate models of natural language, and this made me think of. Um, like how BioSTMs can generate syntactically correct code, leaving aside semantically coherent code, but it, it can generate nested structures inside of code with the sequential model. So clearly, it's doing something kind of like a stack internally. Oh, it's going to have a it's going to have a bounded length, of course, because it's like saving the stack in the hidden state. But the, you could make the argument that just with a sequential model, it, language isn't nested enough. Maybe it can learn whatever hierarchy it needs just in the sequential depth of this file STM. Yeah, uh, that's, that's absolutely right. I mean, this is, the, uh, this is the classic argument. So we know that humans have only a uh, limited capacity for center embedding, probably three words. Sometimes people marginally can, can understand uh, four levels of center embedding. Uh, and um, the question, though, is one about generalization. So. Um, I think given enough data and enough capacity, um, specifically enough data, uh, you could easily learn uh, everything you need to know about language or learn things pretty well uh, from uh, with just a sequential model. Uh, the question that I'm interested in is how do we prevent these learners from making the wrong generalizations? And I think uh, the problem with sequential models is that they are more apt to make the wrong kinds of generalizations that no human would make. And Part of, you know, long term, uh, we want to bring human intelligence and artificial intelligence closer together. Our artificial agents will behave uh, more, more naturalistically, or, and uh, by doing this, we'll also learn something about what humans are, are doing in their heads, maybe, uh, which will be scientifically uh, interesting. Uh, but that's, that's a very good question, and um, uh, yeah, the answer is, is really uh, just one of, by getting the model uh, bias is right. We should have an easier time learning with less data. Um, not that uh, we can't possibly learn with these uh, models that are that are wrong. And in fact, we have superhuman amounts of data, uh, and we know that these models can be excellent uh, on them. Um, so the question is really more uh, one of sample complexity. Yeah, that's a really good point. Great. Uh, are there any other uh, things you'd like to uh, discuss about this paper or? Uh or new new uh, research you're working on um, that is relevant. Um, so I'm still continuing on this uh, with with recurrent neural network grammars. Um, I think there is a lot to be done still uh, with uh, unsupervised learning and using them in conditional generation contexts. Uh, we've started to see some other groups uh, publishing results on using them in translation and things like that. Um, and I think this is going to be a real great uh, test of uh, can they learn uh, from uh, 
in domains where there are fewer samples of uh, training data available. Um, because obviously, if you're just doing language modeling well, we can really go out and find as many words, uh, at least in English, as we need. But if you're doing something like uh, caption generation or um, or translation modeling, then the uh, training, the paired training data, starts to become a lot more expensive. So um, I'm I'm optimistic that we'll we'll see some positive results there too. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, hope we'll see you again. <laughs> Thanks, guys. It was great. Yeah, well, thank you, Chris, for talking with us. That was a really fascinating conversation. Uh, a note to any of you listeners, if you want to similarly be on this podcast and talk with us about your paper, please reach out to us. We're happy to have more people on. Next time, we're going to talk about a paper that came up in this conversation, which is what I think of as the precursor to the paper that we talked about today. It's called Transition-Based Dependency Parsing with Stack Long Short-Term Memory. And it was by Chris Dyer and other people in his group.